Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Going Off Track. My name, as always, is Steven, producer Brad Worrell. Hello. I, I, I like that. Uh, <laughs> Mike Hanjemi, television producer. Yes. Mm-hmm. Music journalist Jonah Bear. Now, Jonah, uh, our guest today is Jonah Matrenga, and we had one episode where I actually called you Jonah Matrenga, and you didn't correct me. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I even noticed that. You didn't notice at all. I was like, Jonah Matrenga here, and you're like, mm-hmm. Nothing. Phenomenal. I feel like I'm so used to getting confused with Jonah. People are like, oh, you work in music. You must be Jonah Matranga. Like, nope. Other people with the fr- that same first name. Yeah, there's a bunch of Jonas. You get confused a lot, so. And you look zero alike. Yes. Zero alike. Uh, Jonah Matranga is a special episode of Going Off Track because when we first started doing the podcast, he was our first guest. Easy to talk to. That would be a great way to break in getting used to this podcast format, this this meme, if you will. <laughs> so uh, Jonah came in and sat down with us. At the time, uh, the podcast was just called Off Track because I hadn't done enough research to realize there was another podcast called Off Track. So, but I sort of like going off track better now. I really like it better. Yeah, I guess that's kind of. I guess yeah, that's kind of. Pro- I guess that's kind of the process. You, have, you always have to start with something. It's like having a band name. Oh my God! They're here. Oh, they're doing it. This is really cool. What's going on out there? Oh, uh, out there at Rubber Track Studio. Should we an alien of Converse's Rubber Track? <laughs> Should studio? we just let this roll? And, <clears throat> I mean, it's cool. We can have that in the background, right? Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Okay. They're, I, you know what they're doing? No. They're basically sampling the acoustics of the room. What? Yeah, you can do this. You can. It's called um, convolution uh, reverb, where they you sample the the basically you're kind of sampling the math of the room and then you can use that to uh to apply like that reverb to any sound so you can make anything you want sound like you had me in convolution (laughs) (laughs) see this is why brad is a producer because if you listen to our podcast and i don't want to toot brad's horn but i will uh, (laughs) he mixes us down so well to make us sound actually cooler than we are you have a button for awesome Right there, I on have the mixing a, board. A, it's a fader. It's a knob, and I mine is all the way up. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> depending take, on how I feel about everybody. That. Can you take mine off? Suck, please. <laughs> that would be that would be possible. Okay, so Jonah Matranga, I've known for years. Um, you're going to hear an argument in this in this episode, and it's an argument that I'm always on the losing side of, and I'm kind of fine with. Um, I'm pro Hagar. I really am. I love David Lee Roth, Van Halen. I'm a big fan of that. Huge fan. I just think they're separate bands, and I don't think it's an argument. I think it's two versions of Van Halen that are each legitimate. Agreed. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. And plus, he attributes all of his success to being visited by otherworldly beings. So you like Sammy Hagar because he thinks he's an alien. See? That's the only the reason- aliens are here. You can <laughs> hear them. That's the only reason I care, too. I'm like, oh, this guy's into aliens. He must be kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, obviously, they told him to make some good decisions like, uh, yeah, you should join that band. Dude, seriously, do it. He's like, I don't know, man. And that band was Montrose. (laughs) (laughs) No, and also the tequila. They're like, you will start the most successful tequila company ever and then sell it for a billion dollars. You're going to be fine. David Lee Roth is known for making stupid videos, a movie that didn't come out, hanging out, like, like, exploiting dwarves, you know, and and swinging a knife around and spray painting his head. Sammy Hagar is an entrepreneur, you know. I've read his book. Dude, he owns Cabo San Lucas. That's it. Like yeah, he, he owns the whole town. He owns like you walk there. That's his place. He's like this. They did his cribs on MTV, and it was Cabo. That was <laughs> it. He walked it. He goes, "Oh, welcome to my crib." And it's Cabo. That's it. Like he owns Cabo. See, I also Sammy Hagar. I think almost to the day is the same age as my dad. <laughs> I have to give it to him. I would, I'd, I'll give it to him. 
Brad, you've been quiet about the Sammy Hagar, David Lee Roth debate. I'm not a big Hagar fan at all. But you know what? I didn't. I don't really like the guys in Van Halen, minus David Lee Roth. I always thought he was. It's a sticky band, and uh, this is going to get ugly. No, they are <laughs> a sticky band. <clears throat> I back it. I like the original, like Van Halen. I like the first couple records. I thought that you know, that Diamond Dave and his Vegas review was very entertaining. After he left, there's nothing there for me. You know, what's interesting is that. Uh, I think people feel the same way about Led Zeppelin. It's like whenever you hear like a Robert Plant record or even him with Alison Krauss or Jimmy Page does solo stuff, like unless they're all standing together, no one gives a shit. You know what I mean? Minus when Jimmy Page did that uh, Puff Daddy record, which was awesome. Or that song for like, <laughs> didn't he like... Yeah, well, he, took, he took Cashmere and it was for the Godzilla soundtrack. <laughs> you, know, was, uh... you know, it's interesting though. Like what's the thing with like, you know, Jason Bonham was playing... Wasn't he playing with Robert Plant and Jimmy Page or something? He, well, the, no, he, What's the thing with like having someone if someone's dead or isn't around having their kid? It's like that's not really like the same person. No, it's no. Like just because they're related, like who cares? No, it's well, not. the story with him is when there was an Atlantic Records, like Ahmet Erdogan birthday anniversary party, something like the eighties, and Led Zeppelin played, and it was with Jason Bonham. And he admits that he thought, well, I'm going to be in Led Zeppelin now. We're going to reform and play. Because my dad, I learned how to play drums. I can play just like him. And the rest of the band was like, no. (laughs) We made the money. (laughs) They're like, make us a sandwich. Your dad's dead. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we'll let you play Whole Lot of Love and Stairway today. But other than that, cut it out. And so he... Then you know went off and formed Bonham and yes. whatever and he but jumps from Barner I think well now he's this super Led Zeppelin literal kind of story now he's like sober and took it very seriously First so of all, you just stop with that he's sober uh, I've stopped listening <laughs> <laughs> you don't support people's rehabilitation some people have body chemistry that I'm cannot so that <laughs> can't process wine the way you do in your Italian system that doesn't have body odor. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a great segue to our straight-edge guest, Jonah Matrenga. From One Line Drawing, Far, New End Original, and Gratitude. (laughs) Yeah! (laughs) Face! Jonah Matrenga. It's going on Ladies and jellyfish, in the studio right now is uh, Jonah Matrenga from every band you've ever liked. Uh, Yeah. So, dude, what are you in town for? Uh, my girlfriend's birthday, which is today. Oh, it is further away. Okay, sorry. Uh, yeah, which is today. So I'm here. This is how much I love music, is that I'm risking serious bodily injury by being here on my girlfriend's birthday. So I think we now should tell you that we're not talking about music anymore on the podcast. We've totally changed it. Excellent. See, that works well for my mind because we could be talking about nuclear power and we'd still be talking about music in my world. I see. I would just be using Led Zeppelin, White Snake analogies to talk about nuclear versus solar, so... One thing before we start talking about music, um, Jonah has a story that I just want to get out of the way because I find it hilarious. I have a bunch of stuff I want to talk about. <laughs> Can we call you Bear and me Matt? I don't know. What should we do? Maybe. Okay. I think um, how many people can tell by the, by the subtle tones in your voice. Well, well I, ran into, I ran into one of your ex-bandmates outside the studio this morning. I wonder <laughs> That's could... such a great sentence because I literally have no idea which decade you're even talking about. That's so I perfect. wanted to see if you could guess it. <laughs> They live very close to here. I mean, I gotta go Brandon or Weingard. Okay. Brandon, yeah. 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 
Norman. I yeah. was just speaking with him yesterday. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he's he's one of the few bandmates that I'm on like, actually good, loving, cordial terms with. Which band was he in? New End. New End? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm uh, glad it was someone you're on good terms with. They could have been super awkward. Oh, no, I'm used to it. I actually enjoy it. Yeah. I enjoy discomfort with ex-bandmates. It's one of my favorite sports. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jonah, if you don't know... Jonah Matrenga, not Jonah Bear, who's also in a bunch of bands, but well, that's for another story. Exactly. <laughs> Mike Mike is in a band. I'm the only one not into bands. Or in, in, in any bands. Oh, that was a good Freudian slip. You like that? Yeah, you've I'm become so really <laughs> sad and jaded and angry. I don't like bands at all. <laughs> Listen to nothing but um oldies on on much music. Channel eighteen twenty three. Not that I have it memorized. Um but my kids love it. Uh Jonah was in Far, uh One Line Drawing, which is where when I met you. Which is one of my favorite stories ever. It was yeah. at the um, CMJ, which is next week. Uh, oh, yeah. CMJ Music Showcase. God, it's so sad. It is it, next week, and I really some. actually don't, I'm not even aware and don't care. And wow, that's weird. It was my first day at Fuse, literal first day. And the night before, I went to the Warsaw, which is Warsaw. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like it's around, but they don't do as many shows there, really. DJs. Last time I saw, like, Pete DJ. and Tom there. That's how long ago. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Mike Patton. We're just going to have a whole Mike Patton segment. He was super, yeah, he looked super hot. I gave Mike Patton a, a fisherman's friend in 1847. Really? He was in Mr. Bungle playing the I-Beam, and uh, they'd been playing a bunch of nights there, and they were kind of blown up, and yeah, his voice was sore, and I was a little singer dork boy, so I gave him a little fisherman's friend. He said, thanks, man. If you look over and then he hung from the rafters eating his own shit that night. Was, if you look over to your right, you'll see Mike Ken Jimmy's boner. Uh, it's hiding under the uh, Oh, I do have the original Bungalow U808 cassette. Yeah. I mean, oh, don't even start right, with me on. about this. Yeah, okay. So the show now, yeah. <laughs> Mike Patton. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everything digressed. What was he wearing? Guys, <laughs> 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 yeah, I'll turn around. He's so great. Well, this Alan. is the best thing. I knew I was going to interview for Fuse, and this was just for Fuse on the web. They were starting, like, web stuff to begin okay. with. Yeah. And I was interviewing uh, you... Uh-huh. Boxcar Racer, uh, The Used, wow. and Reindeer, uh, The Walkmen, who were dicks to me. Um, what a surprise. And, and Reindeer Section. Hey, Reindeer Section is? No. Let's nerd it up. That's Gary Lightbody from Snow Patrol. That's his other band. Really? They couldn't even get Snow Patrol. Genius. So, so you were selling merch, your own merch, of course, for One Line Drawing. And I walked up to you and said, hey... Uh, uh, my name's Steven. I'll be interviewing you tomorrow for Fusing. And I went, oh, great. Cool. Very nice to meet you. You were so nice. And then um, uh, I don't want to be weird or anything. So like, oh, it would be really great to talk to you tomorrow. And I left and got like pierogies because that's what you did at the Warsaw. Yeah. And I came back uh, to talk to you more. I was like, this guy's cool. We should hang for a bit. And on your merch table was a napkin. You were long gone. And on the napkin went, pay what you want, uh, take what you need, gone to rock. And then I went back into the room, and it, I think you were sandwiched between, like, Denali and the explosion. Yeah, because it was the jade tree. Yeah. yeah, all jade tree. Poor jade yeah. tree. Um, and sandwiched right between them, and I look up on stage, and it's you just rocking out, and that was the first time I saw the R2-D2. Yeah, I remember it well, actually. How did, how did R2 become part of your act? I was on tour with Far, um, the first of the many bands, really, and uh, we were on tour, I believe, in the southeast with Monster Magnet. And I think that's a sentence that pretty much speaks for itself. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure I need to describe it more, but if I do, um, let me just say that the guitarist ran up very enthusiastically sometime near then on the tour because he had found an original vinyl copy of Fraley's Comet. Um, In super... I mean, they... That band... I'm just going to start a second. Monster Magnet, if anyone... Space Lord, motherfucker, you know, da-da-da. 
They were the sweetest, most. They were made of rock. They were. That was what their ingredients were. Um, they were so sincere. They were. There was nothing put on about that band. They lived it like I've never been around, and I felt like I was in some sort of time travel machine. Their audiences, need to say, despised us, but they were so so sweet to us. Um, so I just want to say that. To, to avoid any confusion that I'm dissing them. However, the shows were absolutely nightmares, just nightmares. So we were at, at some big, you know, probably Walmart or something like that, you know, just like kind of freaking out in the middle of the afternoon in between drives, like chasing a bus around. And uh, I saw this R2-D2 thing and it was just, all I can say, it was, it's, it's not unlike being, you know, under the influence of hallucinogens or something. It's just tour midway in in the middle of the day in florida when you're with monster magnet and you're just you know third day with no shower and the whole thing just there was something perfect about that little r2d2 toy is all i could say and it was a little tape deck and i got it and i immediately knew that all i could play in it was mid-80s hip-hop so i went to the nearest thrift store and found some rakim and some p and just sort of some BDP and like just I just loaded up with that and all I would do is walk around with that on my shoulder um and love it and that would keep me safe and then anytime a monster magnet fan would come up to me or anyone around Florida who all pretty much look like monster magnet fans um I would take it and it had the scream noise that little where R2 gets hit or something <laughs> and so I'd point that at them and that would that was be my conversation with them <laughs> and so it was it was my defense in the southern United States on tour in the late 90s. I think if I saw that and saw you on that tour, if I had decided to go see Monster Magnet, I probably would have been, I'm going to hang with that dude. Yeah. Well, that's been the good news over the years. That's been the good news is that on all of the Misfit tours, there have always inexplicably been a few people that loved Monster Magnet, probably in the same way that I, I didn't, I can't say I loved them, but I enjoyed them. Mm-hmm. And, and, Someone else felt like a total alien, so no, I made actually some close friends on that tour. That's hilarious. Um, yeah. And what was uh, the other one? Negasonic Teenage Warhead. Is that their other big one next to uh, the Space Lords? I didn't even know they had a follow-up to Space Lords. I didn't so either. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I just have a weird, like, uh, 90s. Yeah, that was good. Uh, way to pull it out, man. Yeah. <laughs> yes. you know, wow. I wouldn't have... The, also, the single randomly, I used to practice Space with Lord. a band in Red Bank, New Jersey, that was Monster Magnet's, like, home recording studio. See? Yeah. <laughs> See? We all have a weird Monster Magnet... Uh, well, not all. No, I don't. I got nothing. <laughs> I, I don't need that. Me. <laughs> Hold on. Borrow mine. Pretend you're at the House of Blues <laughs> in New Orleans, in La- it, playing with Monster Magnet, and it's their set, and a woman is on the crowd, crowd surfing pretty much literally for the whole set, with a skirt, with no panties, just spread-eagling the band the whole set. Wow. So there. That's yeah, yours. I that's my that gift one. to you. Okay. I think after a while you might notice, like, polyps. Like, you, are you sick, honey? Like, that's... Oh, God. It went okay, there. wait, you take that one. Yeah. And you take yeah. the woman also in New Orleans with the leather pants or pleather or something with the zipper that went from the front to the back the whole way and just could just separate the whole pants actually kind of a neat design and there's you oh, holding up r2 screen yeah but then that'd be all zippery in there well that might be part yeah. of the good scene yeah. i don't know yes. i want to yeah. get the, i want to get the other jonah jonah story out of the way oh, yeah. oh well no this Man. is just sort of i get mistaken for you so much i don't know if this ever happens to you probably not because mm-hmm. you're much better known than me but all the time i meet someone and they're like dude i'm like a huge far fan and i'm like that's awesome <laughs> um 
And it happens like sort of a lot. It hasn't happened in a little while, but I feel like do you do you know a lot of other Jonas? I mean, does that do you get mistaken for You know what the funny thing is? You probably get mistaken for me here more than I ever get recognized <laughs> for being me anywhere else. It's it's amazing. It's because it's something about this part of the, I mean where I live I can't I literally can't tell you the last time I got recognized maybe at you know a concert or something like that um it's always when the funny thing about me I think because of all the bands I've had more people mistake I've had more people think I'm ripping me off than actually like I'll be in one band and they'll see me and they'll either cautiously come up and go do you have you heard of one line drawing I'm like like this guy Jonah I'm like, yeah, that's me. Even after they know my name is Jonah, they still actually won't quite understand it. Or if they see the idea, they'd be like, Jonah Matranga? You know, and then they will have seen me back with Monster Magnet yeah, in 1998. Because Matranga's a pretty common last name. Right. Yeah. So there, there. But even then, sometimes people will think, could this be a coincidence? It's amazing to me what the lengths people will go to to think, is this possibly not the person I think it is? Like, Jonah Matranga, who's going to... Anyway. Here, so no, part. Jonah Bear, I've never had a Jonah Bear, but I'm, I'm going to work for it now. Well, so here's the craziest one i gotten, and I don't want to use any names, but there was a mistaken Please identity do. where this girl, I'll tell you after, okay. was like, you wrote my friend like a love letter or something, and I was like, <laughs> and told me who this person was, it was someone in a band, and I was like, I don't think so, and she's like, no, I know it was you, you did this, like, and I was like, it doesn't sound like me, but you know when someone tells you something happened a long time ago, sometimes you're like, maybe I did do that and I sure. just forgot about sure. it. Sure, especially love letters. Yes. yes. So I was convinced that I had done this and I was like, I don't remember it, but it was a long time ago. And then she was like, oh no, it was Jonah Matranga. Um, but I still think she could also be wrong because it sounded like she was so <laughs> sure it was me five minutes ago. <laughs> like it could have been like John something. She got really embarrassed. Like, no, 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 it's, you're Jonah Barrett. No, it's Jonah um, Hill. No, shit, yeah. I don't know him. Matranga, he's in similar scenes. Well, the weird bookend to have to that, and this has nothing to do with the music, but this is the last bookend, maybe. We'll see. Digressions are fun. Um, the bookend I have to that is I had someone try to convince me so passionately that that I had written a love letter to them several years ago, and it took me about 40 minutes to realize that she was totally nuts and had never heard of my music, had never met me, but I was on a show supporting some other band, and she just, and it was this huge drama, but it appeared very valid, but then the story started, started to unravel as it went on, so I don't know, maybe that was your situation too, but she had a matranga to fall back on. The thing I have to interject is, if, if, for those of you listening, since this is audio, obviously, you need to go to these gentlemen's websites, uh, jonahbear.org, and what's yours now? JonahMatranga.com. See, com? I sold out. I went for the dot .com. <clears throat> He's com. cool with the dot .org. <laughs> I wanted to go dot .org. I bought dot .com, then couldn't figure out how to get to work, <laughs> and like then just ended up getting lazy. It's, I haven't updated my website in a while. Buy another one. Maybe you shouldn't go there. But if you go and just look at these guys' pictures, um, just you know, email us with your reaction. As soon as we get an email address to give out. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think, look at the pictures, think about these stories, and our, you can listen to our different bands for, for even better measure, and then meditate on anti-Semitism for a while. <laughs> <laughs> even if you don't do any of Because this things. is a Jew thing. This is the same thing that has my daughter's friends on the squared calling me Ben Stiller. Well, now that's all I can think of. Yeah. And other people calling me Perry Farrell. And other people calling me the dude from Quantum Leap. I don't Although see, I'm not even sure see, if he's Jewish, but I don't big see nose. Perry Farrell at all. <laughs>
Oh, you're a little Scott Bakula. I can see. That. <laughs> see, I can see Bakula actually Bakula. is the most accurate one of all. Yeah, for me. yeah. that's like I think that's a good. That's a. Those are really oh, good no, ones. I, no, it's not that it's bad. It's just strange, and I think it's the same mechanism by which you are mistaken for me because we look nothing alike. But there's something about the way people register faces and names, and they just store it up. And you're kind of a weird looking Jewish looking dude. True. Involved in music, it's just she just called you on a weird weird looking. <laughs> I called me weird. Oh, looking. you weird. Oh, okay. We're both, yeah, we're both weird called, looking. Go, no, we are. We're, and yeah. So um, do you get better celebrity things? I got. I was telling them at the No Effect show. Fat Mike kept calling me Art Garfunkel. Not cool. Not a cool one. Right. Uh, Paul Giamatti. I got once. Not 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 good. Weird. Will Oldham. Like I feel like the ones I get. I'm like. Well, not not. I don't know Oldham's sort of caricatures appearance one of, but obviously the Garfunkel one is the hair. It's yeah. Not, they're, they're so so this is being trumped by this. Yeah, that's the problem. I think when you have. A lot of hair or something. I feel people just go there. The Jufro the- is its own personality. Yeah, yeah. I've never been able to public- do it. My hair just kind of mushrooms down. It doesn't do yours, which I kind of am jealous of. So what I'm happened? To grat- what happened to gratitude? It's gonna be part of the pitchfork paper. Um, the uh, <laughs> gratitude. Gratitude. Great video. You came by Fuse. You played a couple of songs. Acoustic sounded awesome. I liked the record. I think. I think gratitude was just. I had a secret wish somewhere inside me to have the major label, like, 70s-style rock signing just once, Mm -hmm. and I got it. And we got signed by the president of Atlantic in the top-floor office playing on acoustic guitars, no demo. I was being incredibly just uh, sort of combative about that whole thing and didn't want to do the dog and pony show, just kind of wanted to, like, be about songs, man. And I was actually sincere. It's, It's just funny to look back on that actually happened because I was so audacious when I think about it. And so we played the thing, you know, the guy loved the songs and saw greatness or whatever. And, uh, and then we signed a pretty big contract, especially for that time because the sort of post Nirvana money was running out. Um, and, uh, and had all these arguments with business lawyers because I wanted all these exclusions to do my solo stuff, but I still wanted, you know, this good contract. And at one point I remember, uh, this is, it was really a great moment for me of like, I think I have just a lot of fun fucking with industry people because um, their business accountant or some name like that said, we have never given this many uh, key man clauses, means they don't own you after the band. Uh, we've never given this many to someone and given an advance like this. And I just, a very even voice, just said, I'm worth every penny. And there was literally silence from people that will that have already made more than I'll ever make in my entire life. There were like four people on this conference call. There's literally silence for a good few seconds. And I'm not sure the issue was addressed after that, but I got what I wanted. So that pretty much told the story of gratitude. I just kind of, it was just a really fun adventure for me. It was a pretty much performance art. In fact, I really got myself in trouble with Brendan O'Brien. We went to write songs with him. He's a Pearl Jam guy, for anyone who doesn't know. Amazing, amazing, brilliant songwriter and producer um we went to write songs with him and i said something offhandedly about like how i looked at major label record deals as sort of like grants like it wasn't really about making some like a big profitable investment it was just sort of like hey let's go make art with really brilliant people on really amazing equipment and he was really mad about that he said no 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 i want to win and i was like okay no no i, I want to win too totally totally what, what, you know what now, how does two things one win what he wants to he wants to have the number one record all i want to do is make the awesome record on the awesome gear that i really love forever and if it's a success then great i have those daydreams but it's really truly 
not my concern. Like I look at it more like a weird art project because it's Vegas. It's Vegas do when you, you sign a big record deal like that. Do you get that. more money if you get the number one record on the gazillionth Billboard non-urban disclosure Ritmo Latino chart? Like I don't understand. Yes. You do. You get more money if it goes to number one. Not album sales, but like the label goes, oh, here, here's that. If it's number one, that means it's on the radio, and the radio is where you make more money than you'll ever make from the label. Interesting. Oh, yeah, because yeah, they have to pay ASCAP and all those. Fun. That is the most money I've ever made at one shot in music is writing part of a song for a band called Taproot that was a minor hit one summer. Yeah, you helped write a song for Taproot? It's called Calling. Really? Yeah, they gave me, they were giving everyone music because they needed a single for their third record because they were spending so much money on them and they weren't succeeding. So they had Billy Corgan and the dude from 311 and I was managed by the same people. I was in Gratitude at the time, so we're still in Gratitude, by the way. This was the Gratitude world. This was the Gratitude world. And the management comes in and says, hey, we got some instrumental tracks. Do you want to write? And I was like, sure. Fine. I'm like sitting there while they're doing drums or something. Like nothing's happening for me. So I literally sat in the vocal booth. This one's like, oh, this sounds like Foolin' by Def Leppard. And it's like, which I love that <laughs> right, song, right. great fucking chorus. And I was like, okay, so no, no, f- f- no, 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 cook, cook, you cook, 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 call in. But, and I was like, yeah, I'm going for it. And I wrote this chorus and just wrote song literally in three to five minutes. They flipped. It was the first single off the record, like totally beat Billy Corgan, like the whole thing. Need to say, no one's ever heard of the song because it was a very tiny active rock hit one summer. But the point is, still, the ASCAP checks for that song were off the charts. And I, I realized with such clarity in that moment why there's so much fighting and weirdness over publishing in history because publishing is where all the money is. Oh, completely. Yeah, like, how does that work, money. though? You, so you wrote the hook for it, right? Yeah. And then, so then you get, like, the band gets one chunk. You, like, how does that work out, like, I went, um, I went Desmond Child on it. Um, I had heard him say, like, you know, if he wrote the chorus, he gets half. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so I just went Desmond Child. I was nice. just in mode, you know. It just it really because I you knew they loved the it. Major label like like douchebagness of the whole thing. It was hilarious. I mean, it I was just great. It was just fun, you know. So anyway, that in some ways tells a gratitude story. The literal gratitude story is that we were together for a minute. Um, the guy with whom I started the band, uh, I think, wanted it to be when we didn't immediately take off after they made the big expensive video and gave us the deal and all that stuff. I was sort of, I was happier to just be in the van, you know, and just sort of go out and play, which was totally naive of me because that's me. It's like I wanted to enjoy this super fun ride of being like the band on Atlantic Records. Mm-hmm. But yet I didn't want to, you know, then I was being like cost conscious, you know, which is like, it's very strange for me. These ASCAP uh, checks are huge. We have to make every penny bleed. Yeah, I know. It was just, no, but I mean, they were, because then when it came to time to touring, everyone wanted buses. And I was like, ew, like, ugh, I don't want to do that. And they're like, what? You know, who, what do you, what, what ride do you think you've gotten on at the carnival? And then I realized what ride I'd gotten on. And I just realized how sort of dumb I was being and how much I'd lost track. Um, and so anyway, that resulted in the uh, guy who I started the band with quitting, and then which at which point the band got a lot more fun for a minute. And we actually did a UK tour where we played Reading and stuff, which was amazing, and um, and was one of the fun, most fun musical times of my life. Once the poison <laughs> was removed from the equation, um, but then he tried to sue us for the band name. Um, and tried to sue me in particular for emotional distress and breach of fiduciary duty and 
His dad was a lawyer, so that kind of tells the rest of the story. Yeah, and I got some really threatening letters from some really, really big lawyers, and all of a sudden, the whole thing, again, it was sort of this fun thing that was a playland for me, and then it was just really uh, gross beyond gross, and it just sent me running back from my living room. It sounds like a a huge, you know, legal nightmare when when you're in a band. And I always wonder how... You know, all this money goes to a band and all this. Did I just blow your eardrums? Sorry. Cleared my throat. Um, Sorry. When a band is together and signed by a label, and then they break up. Mm. Like, then, of course, there's publishing and there's chunks to go up. But, like, you're you're just done, like, like with with the label. Like, how does that work when the band is over? Is Is there a period of time, like, just stay together until this moment, then you can break up, or... It's just whenever it'll just There are more graceful periods than not to do that. And it's funny. I mean, as cantankerous as I can be with labels, I actually try to be respectful about the agreements I've made with people and see them through and all that. And this was a case where other dude uh, that was that was quitting, um, I just... It was so strange to me because I thought, why don't we, do, why don't we finish out this album cycle? Like, I can't imagine what you're so upset about or how upset you are even this is we're just playing music what what did you think we were doing here and he was just so i don't know i just thought disrespectful to not not to me i don't mm-hmm. actually couldn't care less but to the label and to all these people that have been putting all this work into it and so i might shoot myself in the foot and have really weird arguments with creative and with management about what i think are interesting ways to do things that just piss everyone else off i acknowledge that i do that but i don't quit i don't leave i don't not do what I said I was going to do. And so if I do an album cycle, I do an album cycle. So it, yeah, it's, it's, you're supposed to, I think, stop it, you know, with, you know, unless there's, unless there's not just blood or vomit, but unless there's blood and vomit involved, you can't quit. That's my rule. And so with an album cycle, you can't quit unless someone's really, really sick or hurt or something. So that just ties us into Led Zeppelin, basically. Pretty much. It's really morbid of you, man. Yeah. Come on. You know, you know, we've had the discussion about Zeppelin. Which one? Well, you're like a giant. No, excuse me. We've had the discussion about Van Halen. Ah, yes. Yeah, That's that. a different discussion. Yeah. That I don't. I'm not even sure we should open up this particular can of worms because you're gonna have a problem after this. Yeah. I've seen. I've seen. I've seen both versions. The, <laughs> the fact that he would say both versions indicates that two different bands, in my opinion. Mm. One just had a lot more hits than the other, you know, and made a lot of ass. Also in gratitude, I lost a major <laughs> I lost a major radio campaign because someone like you was daring to utter Van Hagar and Rother Halen in the same sentence as if they were the same entity. And I got so frustrated at our big expensive dinner that we lost all of the radio for that region. So how do you feel about that? I feel totally proud and I'd stand by it today. I also lost another region of radio when someone maintained that America's preeminent historical troubadour was Billy Joel rather than Bob Dylan. So that was two radio programs gone down the tube. Uh, I, back, I back you on, on because that. Because me, for me being a total geek that can't take people calling Van Hagar anything but Van Hagar. You know, they want, did you read Sammy's book? You should read Sammy's book. They wanted to call it Van Hagar. The label wanted to call it Van Hagar. Half the band wanted to call it Van Hagar. But it was Sammy who said, no, no, let's keep it van halen you know because it's your band yeah you know why because sammy makes cabo tequila and he's a good marketing person and he understood that van hagar would have flopped and been as shitty as the band actually was and no one would have bought the records but calling it van halen you've got a brand and a corporation and dozens of millions of fans behind it and he's not going to fail then sammy's smart was much smarter than the drunken buffoon who puts brushes in i used to live in mill valley and sammy hagar lived in mill valley it's this marin county place and uh 
I used to have daydreams, literal daydreams of Sammy being in his like red Ferrari and like pulling up at the depot, the little coffee place where I worked. And, and I'd go, Hey Sammy. And he'd look over and like, Hey, what's up? And I'd go, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> that was like Sammy Hagar fans. <laughs> this is what it is me. This very, is me. He's a very nice gentleman. I'm sure he is. I'm sure he is. <laughs> I just, this is me. I realize. I love I, all those records before too. I'm a, hu- I'm a huge Van Halen fan. All, the whole catalog. You, it's for Gary only Sharon. because I know you so well. If we didn't know each other in this first meeting you talked about with One Line Drawing, we had, you had let on that you had this weird fetish. We would not be friends. People because, that don't, people that can't take, that can't understand truly Prince, Dylan, Zeppelin, Bowie, or if they're weird about the Beatles and pretend they're not awesome, and or like Jason Mraz, Dave Matthews, Jack Johnson, or Van Hagar, I can't be friends with them. I, I hear what you're saying, and, <laughs> and I back the passion behind it. I, I don't even back the passion behind it. I just acknowledge it as a disease of mine. You have to separate the band from the songs because having interviewed Dave Matthews, you would lo- you and Dave Matthews would sit on each other's shoulders and talk for hours. You were cut from the same cloth. You were both hilarious, and you both treat the guitar with the same amount of fervor when you play it. Yeah, but he turned really shitty frat rock funk and into something that people feel political when they listen to he it. He loathes it's his so fans. Sad. I can, I can, I can pretty much See? I can confirm that. And he's like, I can't choose the people who listen to me. I can't yes, choose can, the no. people. See, this is where I differ with him. I become a really cranky artist because <laughs> I hate artists that blame their fate on other forces. But, but he writes some. I think Dave Matthews writes some really good songs. Yes, I said it, and I'm wearing a NoFX T-shirt when I said it. Well, Stephen, just hike up your skirt a little more and show your world to me. You know a Dave Matthews lyric? That's a great lyric. See, <laughs> I bet the guy who wrote that Actually, hook no, got a lot of money from it. No, it is a good lyric. But more than that, I remember being surprised. Like, wow, he got that lyric on the radio. <laughs> good on you, hippie guy. Like, good. Um, no, I've, no, that's a good tune. I'll take that tune because it's a ballad. I'm a sucker that's what for the I'm saying. ballad. I like, I like, I like tunes. Ballads and slow mo sports movies. I'm totally down. I get it. Sports movies are the only kind of sports I actually enjoy. Fair enough. Like for the amount of times I've seen the replacements with Keanu Reeves, I think I've seen that as I'm much as I've seen Star Wars. Dennis Quaid, but any movie with Keanu, but that's what I I'm need to see the rookie with Dennis Quaid. I haven't oh, seen it so yet. Good. Because it's always on like ABC Family it's good and for you I don't want to. You're an old guy and you're trying to figure it out. It's about that. Yeah, you realize when you're old. Yeah, John, uh, I'm I'm approaching the the fourth decade, and you're you're. In yeah, by it. the way, I'm older than him. That's the joke here on radio. Yeah, but you're not. You're not. You're not like ten years older. Like a year and a half older than me. Really? Are you sixty nine? <laughs> <laughs> Born meaning, in. meaning the year in. Okay, so uh, so you have a song called fourteen forty one. Yeah. And how's that irony now? It's actually great because <clears throat> it it definitely. Uh, well, no, first was great. Now it might be a little sad. I'm not sure. Um, no, I liked writing a song that wasn't Hope I Die Before I Get Old. I liked writing a song that said, when I finally make to this age out of this ridiculously confusing, weird time in my life, I'm going to be hopefully a little a little sort of wiser and more grounded in all those neat words, which I'm not. But um, but it was neat to kind of go through that. A couple of years ago, something I, I either emailed, called, or texted with their electronic medium mm. because everyone, uh, we, were, we were all in the opposite fuse and everyone was just going crazy about this Radiohead record in Rainbows and how they were marketing it and selling it. And they were like, oh my God, it's like pay what you want, whatever. And I, and I actually said to someone, Jonah Matrang has been doing that forever. Like that's his whole deal. And I called you up and you just kind of went, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was pretty much the whole reaction. Yeah. How did you come by your your strategy for 
selling things, which is kind of what the internet has become with Kickstarter, mm-hmm. with uh, people pledging things, with um, you know shareware, open source. Like it's they're literally. I would say the main quality is laziness um, because I just I just didn't really ever want to make the fan. You know, here's where it is. I was the paper boy uh, in seventh grade or something like that, um, and therefore I'd be up super early delivering the papers. And on trash day, we lived in a neighborhood uh, with a lot of rich people on the street. We were, by exponential margin, uh, the poorest people on the street. Um, and so I would go out and trash pick all the rich people's trash they'd throw out movie cameras and toaster ovens and weird like working shit and so i would take it on my paper out and bring it home and then every two weeks i'd have yard sales and pretty much sell all their shit back to them um which they probably forgot they threw out or something like that and it looked familiar to them so they'd buy it again anyway i had so much stuff that and i just wouldn't want to put prices on it so i would just put it out and i literally there are flyers that i made that my mom still has that say pay what you want yard sale and when I discovered this 10, 15 years into trying to make music for a living, I was really happy because I could never answer that question in interviews about, well, how do you think of sliding scale? And I think it's just always something I've done. There's not any sort of like badass Fugazi ideological, you know, part of the people thing to it. Like I believe in all those things I just said, but it was really just fun. I think it probably happened the first time some kid was like, I only have eight bucks. Can I still have a t-shirt? You know, which is 10 bucks. And... And it wasn't even a, a question for me. And so I think it just sort of became slowly official. I've driven so many merch guys crazy. When I was on tour with Thursday, oh my God, I don't, there had this merch guy, I can't even remember his name, but he was such a cranky, awesome human being. And he, and Thursday was doing crazy money every night in merch. And I, just being on tour with him and being this weird guy with a guitar, was doing also doing crazy money on tour. And he would see me talking to everyone and just, you know, just hanging out and selling anything for anything and all that stuff and just, you know, stuffing money in my pockets and not counting it. And he was very, he had to be, he was working for the band, you know, he was very specific about it. And then I would leave and like, I'll be right back. I got to go play. And he would just look at me like, I hate you so much, but he kind of liked me in this weird, like little dog way. And, uh, and I would come back and he'd be like chewing out some fan that was trying to get something for, you know, I was like, you sold sliding scale. And he's like, I hate you right now. So, so I don't know. It's just, but how did that dork. work? If you played a venue like Roseland or something, we where used the, to count out. Yeah. Like, yeah. I can yeah. See how that could get really confusing. It's, it's one of the many reasons I'm happy that I never made it at that level. Cause I always, I mean, God, those places, some of those big places, at least they used to, they would take like 30%, which is so disgusting to me madison square garden um, takes 51 percent. yes yeah merch. right i'm sure the more you get the more you get yeah i remember the fillmore the warfield or somewhere it took 35 percent. my friend was playing there and i was like it just made me not want to play there the more i learned over the years about whatever playing in big places and being successful the more i just realized how little i wanted it how it just, there was just nothing there it wasn't it just I remember seeing Nine Inch Nails when Far was just starting in the late 90s, like playing the Arco Arena in Sacramento. And I just remember sitting there thinking, and I was a total like ready for, you know, I wanted to make a living making music. I had as many rock star dreams as anyone, but I went to this show and it was a big cement block with advertising all over it, owned by an oil company. And I was like, oh, this is it? And Nine Inch Nails were one of the coolest things going right then. I mean, they had cred for days. I mean, I liked them. I didn't love them as much as anyone, everyone else, but I was 
into them enough to be at the show and curious about them. And I, I looked around and it wasn't, again, it wasn't me trying to be all punk. It just was sad. And, and I just knew that I'd been really naive about where this was all leading to. And I think that was definitely an early... I probably should have told everyone that ever wanted to invest any considerable amount of money in me after that, that story because they wouldn't have done it after that and I would have been more responsible because uh, I knew at that moment that I was never going to try that hard to get to that level. The Atlantic wouldn't have signed you then. No. You sat in that meeting. No. I just managed to avoid it by just talking about the songs. I'm worth every penny, but there was this Nine Inch Nails show that really changed my life. <laughs> no, I had so many fights with Epic when we were on Epic. Oh, man, they hated Pearl Jam. When Pearl Jam was doing the Ticketmaster thing, they hated them so much. And Pearl Jam's business was down, of course, because they'd stopped doing videos. And now that Pearl Jam's the last band standing and super celebrated and the only band from that era that is even really remembered or at all relevant, now it's a different story. But back then, they hated them at Epic. Hmm. And I had this huge sort of argument with this guy really higher Which up. Which band was on Epic real quick? Huh? Far, oh, Far. Far was on Epic, yeah. Immortal Epic, yeah. And uh, I had this huge argument with this guy about about the myth of rock. And I was just saying, you right now are eroding the myth of rock. Like The reason that people buy this stuff is because of stories like this, of a band taking on Ticketmaster, of Dylan going electric. I said, when Dylan went electric, this was not a good idea. It is now one of the iconic moments in rock that probably in and of itself sells music to curious young kids who hear about this story and this guy who did this and flew in the face of whatever was popular. However, by poo-pooing that and having this short-sightedness about this band, you're blowing it. You're blowing it right now. And he looked at me and said, you're much, much too smart to be in a band. He was very, he was very annoyed with me for being so like. You know, I met a guy who was at that Dylan show that you played electric at. That's awesome. And uh, if you ask him, he completely, well, erodes it. He goes, "Yeah, we didn't really care that much. Right? We're just kind of like, eh, jerk, whatever." So I'm saying, I'm not even saying it's true. I'm yeah. just saying that yeah. this is the point. But the industry sure hated it. Oh yeah, because they had their brand and their brand was not behaving. Branding. Oh, branding. Speaking of Pearl Jam, um, I was wondering if you could... Norman told me this story over the weekend. I was wondering if you would tell it. Your uh, Neil Young story. Which okay. is so awesome. And I'll I don't want to put you on public. the spot, but it is... No, a, uh, I would love to. This is a good nerd story. Yes. Yeah, this is a good... Yeah, and as almost a preface to this, I will, for right now, advertise my little, uh, my little Dear Diary section on my website because I tell ridiculously nerdy stories of growing up loving Pearl Jam. So, this is a good forward to this story, which is that my friend Adam works for Facebook now, and he's working with uh, the Bridge School people. Okay. Neil Young and his wife Peggy have two children, I believe, one of which is, both of which are developmentally disabled, one of which is severely developmentally disabled, um, regardless of the specifics of that. They started a school called the Bridge School to help children on various levels, various points on that continuum um so it's a great benefit happens every year lots of great artists blah 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 and you have to play acoustic right all acoustic i could tell you lots of cool things about it. i've been to a lot of them anyway adam's helping promote this and because the youngs are so hands-on with this and with everything they do because neil young's so awesome my friend adam finds himself talking to directly to neil young a lot upon hearing this news i being the nerd that i am uh, said, hey, if there's ever a completely, you know, like or, or a way that's not completely tasteless to get Neil a record of mine, anything, just just to know that kind of it made it to him. He's a big hero of mine. 
that'd be wonderful. And Adam knows what a geek I am and likes my music and all that. And so he said, of course, of course I will. And so a couple of days later, he said, uh, he texted me and, and uh, wrote, you need to call me right now. And I was on the phone and I just texted him back, okay, I'll call you in a sec. He's like, well, no, 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 you need to get to FedEx really quickly. And I knew exactly what it was about. And so I got all excited and I was like, okay, I got to go. <laughs> Called him up and said, hey, um, what are you, what's going on? You're kind of driving me crazy right now. What's happening? And he said, okay, so I think I can get, give Neil your music. And uh, I found a nice point in the conversation, was able to kind of bring you up and start talking about you. And I think sort of it would be a good time to send him music. And, and I said, well, thank you so much. He's like, but you're going to want to sit down for this next part. And I said, okay. And so I, I literally sat and he said, okay, so I'm talking to Neil. I'm trying to explain to him that you're not some jackass kind of sitting in your house or whatever, you know, trying to explain that I'm, you know, I've been a legitimate artist for 20 years and been trying to do this. And so it's not just his buddy wanting a break. So he's trying to, he was just saying all the bands, all the band names. And he got to the band name Far. He said, so there's this band Far. And Neil says, Far. And Adam says, yeah. And there's a long pause. And Neil says, Eddie liked Far. Eddie told me about Far. He loves them. Now, at this point, my heart's somewhere in China. Um, <laughs> um, and, uh, and because there could be two, there are no two men, singer, songwriter, rock entities that have brought me up more than those two guys. So then he goes and shuffles around in his house or something. Adam hears him on the phone and he comes back and he says, oh, yeah. Tin cans with strings to you. Which indicates that he's holding a far record from the mid-90s that Eddie Vedder has given him. And so just to run the numbers here, I have been, I have listened to about 4% of the stuff that's been given to me over the years. Not because I don't appreciate it, but just because it gets lost on tour. It's, you know, by the time you make it home, it just shits crazy. That's me. So let's do the numbers of how much shit Eddie Vedder's been given by dorky fanboys and bands like me. Then let's do the numbers of how much stuff Neil's been given by anyone. And then let's think what it would take for Eddie Vedder of all the things you could give Neil Young and tell Neil Young about. I mean, there are a lot of really great bands in this world that they take on tour, they do all the stuff with. How does he end up giving him a record that I was a part of making? This, for me, is pretty much proof of unicorns. This, is, this, this to me, is, I'm still, I will, I don't care what happens after this. So I made Neil Young this horribly dorky package of all these records and all this handmade stuff I've made in this ridiculous letter. And I said in the letter, this is a great circle because 20 years ago when I was starting to make music for a living, I gave a letter like this to Ed, and which is true. And, um... So it was the craziest. It remains, it's to say it out loud, is I've only said it out loud like five times. It's still, imagine the conversation in which Eddie Vedder says to Neil Young, check this out, and hands him a far record. I don't get it. I actually don't get it. I think I'm lying. Well, do, I mean, so... I would have thought Adam was lying. I would have thought Neil was lying. If Neil had just said, oh yeah, I think I've heard of them. Well, Neil did a lot of drugs. Well, no, right. <laughs> so here's, the, here's another numbers game. When did Ed give him the record? The record was released in 1996. Mm -hmm. 
15 years ago. So he either gave the record a long time ago and the conversation was significant enough that he kept it around, or he is some sort of savant that remembers every little thing ever that occurs, and we don't know this about Neil, and then it's no big deal. But he did do a lot of drugs, and he doesn't seem that sharp about such things. So it's it's really, anyway, whatever. It's just ridiculous. I like the idea that Eddie Vedder either bought your record, which is great, or... He's yeah. rummaging through the room that all record labels had at Epic where they hear like, take what you want. And he's like, all right. And he grabs his far record and listens to it and then thanks enough of it to give it to Neil Young, which is probably the greatest story. No, he gave, it is my favorite rock geek story that I've ever heard. And it's not so much that, for anything, it doesn't mean anything to my career now, that's for sure. It's a, you know, record 15 years old band that doesn't exist anymore for all intents and purposes. So it doesn't matter to me. But yeah, just as a geek, like, I don't know. Just yeah, my music was. I don't know. What's well, interesting? Well, I was gonna say the <sighs> coolest part is that Neil puts down the phone. He says, "Hold on," and goes and gets it. And I then, know. Like within a few minutes, like I couldn't even find a record. Like if someone was like, "Oh, do you have like you know whatever whatever album?" I'd be like, "Yeah, sure, I got." I'm like, I'd take like a half hour to go find. I'd have to be rummaging through stuff. He must have just had it out, or like you know. I, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I want to know now. I think that's the coolest part. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. See, I can't even decide the coolest part, but that might well be it. Is how did he know where it was? Like, hold on, let me just get it. It yeah. literally took me ten minutes to find my pants this morning, <laughs> oh. and I wear these pants That's every day. Saying, and I thought they were gone or something. And then you forgot your metro card. Yeah, and then forgot yeah. my metro card. And this guy can find a fifteen-year-old like, CD. Yeah. I couldn't have found that CD as quickly as he could have. <laughs> and if I were in front of Neil Young, I wouldn't have given him my music. <laughs> There's so much other music I would have given him besides mine. And he was in Buffalo Springfield. <laughs> okay thank you for asking me to tell it but now i just feel really shaken up because that story freaks me out i think it's a great well you know what's interesting about eddie vetter and, oh, and neil young both aside from great songwriting and, and illustrious careers um they also have that style that you have of i, don't, I can see the influence they would have over you of kind of sticking to the man hey that's not fair because neil young had all his legal issues back in the day that famous you know david geffen lawsuit sure, um best. those records they got angry over trans yeah, you know well, the record david geffen sued neil young for not being enough like himself yeah. in the 80s and then he did that 50s pop record which yeah. was neil the blue notes neil the shocking pinks and trans those were the that's the the, tri- the triad that got him sued trans is a crazy record and you would only and he made that record in learning to use, trying to find technology to speak with his son. Yep. That is how I got interested in that technology that made that kind of awesome record. But more than that, the story behind it, that's what I relate to about Neil Young and Eddie Vedder. It's not good causes or anything like that or sticking it to the man. It's actually that they're just unbelievably romantic, music geek, sincere, ridiculously over-the-top sincere people who, mm-hmm. who are confused, in fact, about how that works. They're both obviously infinitely more iconic and famous and talented and everything else than me. But there is a mirror here for me of that's, no matter where this goes, that's how I want to do this. I want to be totally confused about this. I want to be on a major label once and make a big video there. And then I want to go and make a thing in my bedroom. And they're the same to me. And I want to not care if I made a hard rock record last year. I want to make this record this year. And it's not to be... I'm not trying to be weird. In fact, trying to be weird is the lamest sellout of all. You're not trying um, to be weird. Those artists and you are about the left turn, and it's not even a conscious left turn no. because there's a trajectory. I'm talking with my hands. There's a trajectory oh, that you're going, yeah. and then you just you, you swing left. It's at, when people write comedy. David Letterman said, "You know, you write comedy, you go one way, you make a left turn." 
Pearl Jam made a left turn after the first record. Like, we're not going to make videos anymore. Oh, and the last video we made is about a kid who kills himself. Like, that's how we're going to end this. And then we're going to go forward and, you know, and do other records. Um, Neil Young, you know, gets some lost. what's even better lawsuit. about the Pearl Jam video is that that's after Ed saying a million times a million interviews before then, we're never going to do a video in which we lip sync. Yeah. And then they do a video in which they lip sync. And I love that. Mm. I love saying something so emphatically and meaning it. And then absolutely you get around a video guy who's got a really great idea for a video and it's a high concept thing and it kind of requires you not doing a live performance that's filmed. And you make the choice and you know you're going to look like an idiot and you do it anyway. That's that's the best, is knowing that you're going to look like an idiot to a lot of people and deciding that the idea is more important than that. And then right after that, and completely changing the face of rock music, you then go back to not only not doing lip sync videos, but not doing videos at all. And you then piss off a bunch more people. And again, the point isn't pissing people off. I think people get confused the same way people get confused. Like, I think if they'll do enough drugs, they'll be cool like Keith Richards. No, you got to be Keith Richards and then you get to do the drugs. Sorry. But people, people being cranky, lame people, no, I'm not in support of that. But people following their heart and in that, shooting themselves in the foot and doing the Paul Westerberg, Frank Black, like all my favorites thing. Mm -hmm. This is beautiful. This is, this is to me, this is why any of us ever picked up a guitar and or were interested in it, even if there were all the fame things. There's just, even the fame stuff, that's what we're interested in. It's just, what is it to be that person? And that's, that's always what I've been interested in in music is, it's not even music. It's actually just, just actually enjoying whatever idea comes next. and You yeah. uh, you were early with Pearl Jam. Oh, yeah. You were out of the gate with him. Oh, yeah. No, seriously. Anyone you who River either... You Love Bone fan? Yeah, yeah. Anyone who just either wants to make fun of me for what a loser I am and or loves Pearl Jam as much as I do or is just curious about what it is to be a rock geek, definitely read my Pearl Jam stuff because they're just crazy tales. But yeah, no, it's... um. They, yeah, no, there's, <laughs> there's on video and night, which, which ties this Neil Young thing together so well, so you understand how much I love both of them. There's a video of Eddie in 1992. They were supposed to play a show called Drop in the Park, free show in Seattle. Um, they were kind of blowing up and the city freaked out and screwed it up. And so Eddie went out to the field where it was supposed to be on the day that it was supposed to be um, to apologize to the fans that had driven all this way because it got canceled really short notice. Is there a stage for him to apologize for or he just do it? He walked around. No, I mean, there's time. there's oh. YouTube footage of him walking around a field uh, talking to people and saying to my little cadre of Pearl Jam geeks that would follow them around saying, hey, uh, where's Jonah? So, <laughs> so this is a good bookend, you right? you wonder how he knew far? Well, no, I knew how he knew far. What I didn't know is that he ever gave a shit. I knew that I was a nerd who was stalking him and giving him our t-shirts and records. I could tell you that. What I couldn't tell you is why he bothered to listen to them or care or pass it to Neil Young. Maybe That's was, what I couldn't tell you. Maybe he was looking for lyrics that said, I love you, Eddie, so much. I want you dead. They're all there. No, <laughs> They're there in my bad Kermit the Frog Eddie Vedder impression that was on the early local far stuff. Oh, boy. Did you see the documentary? Yeah. So I went with my friend to a screening as a huge fan, mm-hmm. and afterwards she was like, that was great, but I'm kind of bummed that now everyone's going to be like, I love Pearl Jam. Now she's like, I've been listening to them like this sure. whole time, and no one cared, and now yeah. she's like, there's going to be this renaissance. Everyone's like, oh, these songs are great, like, yeah. blah, blah, blah. I mean, did you feel any sort of... Nah. Or you didn't... I, I, not only did, were people dismissive of Pearl Jam, people have been openly hostile to me over my tenure of loving Pearl Jam. I mean, people in bands I've been in, people... 
at all stages of it when they were first blown up. I mean, I had all my friends calling like the new bad company. They were just really, they just really hated them. A lot of people did. And right on through, they always had a lot of people hating them, which I think is a really good sign that you're doing the right thing as an artist. But so now I, I couldn't care less. And actually, I, I totally disagree with your friend. I don't think there's going to be any sort of renaissance. Um, I think the people that still like Pearl Jam are the people that still like Pearl Jam. Um, what's funny for me, though, is to go and meet people just as insane as I was, but they found them on like no code or something. And I'm, I'm like old father time and I can tell them all these stories of the early nineties and that's oh, great. So now I actually didn't like the doc that much. Really? Yeah. I mean, I'll like the bonus DVD and all the other footage. I thought it was just trying to tell, well, it's trying to tell 20 year story in two hours, which is just a problem of the format. I, right. I think it could, would do better as like a seven hour mini series or something. And, um. Yeah, Cameron Crowe. As much as I love him, I don't know. I, I think he kind of missed a little bit. And finally, I think it's so. The main feeling I came out of that movie with is it is so sad that everything is preserved on video. That area of video preservation of rock is like when the first shitty reverb came out and ruined all the snare tones for like ten years. That's what video is. I think they should have done something to that footage to make it look like Super 8 or something like that. Because you look at like Monterey pop footage, it sounds crazy and all that stuff, but it just looks, you can just feel it. And a lot of that video stuff, I just I, I just thought it looked really cheap. And I, I get that's what it was filmed on and that's how it works, but I think it's so sad that that was the low cost. It's so crazy that everything was like beta back then. Mm-hmm. And, and just uh, they, everyone thinks it looks awesome, but they think it looks awesome for, you know, news gathering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was yeah. Uh, to me. Even the professionally filmed, you know, the MTV footage stuff, it just looks terrible, and it really, uh, yeah. It I, I I wish they had done something to address that. Frankly, I don't. I don't know. It's hard when that's the decade to call from. Like that's what you're going to find. That's what like, I'm saying. Like, like, it really reminded me. Oh my gosh! Anyone trying to. F- sort of deal with this decade it's just terrible looking footage and to me it just oh yeah takes away from i was at a lot of the moments that are in that movie <laughs> and they were a hell of a lot more majestic than they looked uh yeah well i thought was weird was a way i they handled the drummer thing yeah because i yeah, never really understood too. that and yeah, i was like that was i can't a, wait till they get to this that part. was a story worth telling right yeah that's what i wanted to know about and i felt like they spent like what 30 seconds of like this guy this guy this guy yeah there was a little bit uh, i I was, uh, there's a lot of vulnerability in that movie, but considering who Pearl Jam is and who Cameron Crowe is, I actually was hoping for it to be a little more revealing and a little bit more embarrassing. And they had some obvious embarrassing stuff, but like that Metallica, some kind of monster movie, that, that was, was awesome. an embarrassing yeah, movie. I mean, they were, they were crying. I mean, that's, that's like, no, yeah. that was an embarrassing movie. Like talking about your therapist, yeah. like that was so skin crawlingly mortifying and i loved it for that yeah. reason that i actually came out of the movie loving metallica way more than i loved them before mm. i mean i already really loved them but just making a movie like that and letting yeah. it get made and i don't understand i can't believe they let that get out there i know so and that was the, i know they, i know that's this the is, edited down version a friend of mine uh our friend john bendis he uh was given the eight hour original cut of that film and said, give us your notes, because he's like a big music uh, video uh, producer editor, and he works with a lot of bands. He's doing um, some cool stuff now. But he said the one thing he told them to take out of the movie that they did not 
and he doesn't understand why, is Lars selling his artwork. I loved that, yeah. See, I hated that part, because it's like, this has nothing to do with the band. That just shows Lars being the douche that he is. Yeah. That's why, yeah, I guess that's, yeah. yeah. Is, Maybe they're yeah. like, let's keep this in. Yeah. Okay, I'll take, yeah, yeah, take it that angle. Yeah. I'm not bucking for Lars to come on this. <laughs> there is nothing, there is nothing that I love more and have always fought for than taking down this retarded curtain of mystique. I want I want all of it to be seen of how embarrassing and stupid and retarded it is to be in rock bands and the egos and the silly fights and oh man, and that Metallica movie, I think I just thought it just told such anyone who thinks that some version of that hasn't happened on every band at every level ever is totally on crack. We had an intern at Fuse that uh that we would, we would give our interns nicknames, <laughs> but only the morons and, that, that didn't really do their work. But we had one guy, actually it turned out to be kind of a cool guy, but yeah. he, um, we were talking about Death Magnetic, and three of us were like, God, oh, record's so stupid, this guy just out of the number one. I like it, and we're like, no one asked you anything, because he's an intern. See, and, God bless him. You know, and, uh, and so then we just called him Death Magnetic from yeah. then on. That was his nickname. The he's like, dude, Unforgiven 3, that. man. That's pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, seriously, dude? I didn't even know there was Unforgiven 3. I was like, really? Yeah. Cut to Mike and I at Bonnaroo uh, oh, yeah. shooting footage. And they're like, Metallica's playing. We're like, all right. And we had photo pass. We now at the front. And they just ran through Creeping Death, I almost cried. Ride the Lightning, and yeah. For Whom the Bell Tolls in <laughs> In a row, and then they cleared out the photo area where we had, you know, passes, and I boot like the whole thing. I have nice, like a tiny nice. camera, and we literally just left and went. I don't need to see the rest of the set. Like I'm good. Yeah. Like, I'm totally fine. Yeah. Well, I also wasn't sure what to expect because it was Metallica now, and I was like, oh, I don't know, you know, like is it like still? And you know, again with the whole like rock star sober thing and all that, I was like, because he can be able to do it what he <laughs> used to do, you know. Yeah. And then I went up, and it was just like. Not only did I shut up within three seconds, but I felt like I blow at everything. Like I watched him, I was just watching them as a unit. And yeah, I was like, oh, there, dude, I can't play anything. I suck. Yeah, the two times I've seen him, I saw him do the Metallica S and M tour when they did the opera shit out in the East Bay, and like, and that was Hetfield blew my mind that night. And I saw him on a festival. We played with the Matt like from a very long distance, and both times, I mean, they, I, I actually literally have chills right now. They are. A force of nature, that band, and and anyone who, I'll add them to the list. Anyone who doesn't understand what a force of nature Metallica is, like problems. I'm a Metallica fan, but I'm actually the here's the way, I'm not even a huge Metallica fan. I just understand that they are a force of nature. Yes, yeah. they, it's not that I love them so much or could name you track six off whatever. It's not that I do love. I am sort of a ride the lightning master puppets guy, right? Um, but. Sa- their finest hour is the moment in Sabbath True where it drops down into the riff. That ga, 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 mm, mm. I mean, that's just oh god! I stole that from Tower Records the night before it came out, and listening to that moment, I never will forget hearing that moment count yeah. speakers. So that said, though, it's not that I love them. It's just that over the years, I've just come to understand. And you see a band live that'll tell you everything. That band live will just destroy your world and remind you what a lot of rock and roll isn't. But the Lou Reed thing. And then... <laughs> <laughs> I just heard this. I know. It, it's, it's, that's a real thing. That's a real thing that actually happened. That's insane. Can we just call this episode But the Lou Reed thing? Yeah. 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 Because yeah, that happened. is all it's about. And no, and this is, this is you're so perfectly pointing back to that's what I love. I listened to about 4.7 seconds of that. 
It was the most atrocious thing I've ever heard. I adore Lou Reed a lot. And I really, as mentioned, have respect beyond respect for Metallica and, and actually do love them too. I just, I, I'm always careful to say that because there are people that actually really love them the way I love Zeppelin or Pearl Jam or Prince or something like that. So I'm not saying I'm like that about Metallica. And, but what I love about them is they did the Lou Reed thing. I don't even understand that. It's, it's just insanity. But so was some kind of monster. And God, it's making me revise my my horrible opinion of like turn the page. Because to me, when Metallica covered Seeger, this was a problem. Metallica getting together with Lou Reed, not so much. I don't, it's just weird and great. The Seeger thing and the eyeliner and the you know shortened hair and all that stuff, big big problem for me. Um, but that said, I actually I, I, I actually might, in this very moment I might take it back because it's just one more crazy turn. I hated it. I thought it was insane, but same time, it was their Lou Reed moment. Then I think they've been having Lou Reed moments for twenty years now. And that's a really good deal. And I think it's one of the reasons, besides the fact that they're so awesome and they've got these records in their back pocket, that people are so interested in them. Because you literally don't know what's going to happen with them at this point. It's like they're the preeminent iconic metal band, and they just did a completely unlistenable piece of crap with Lou Reed. They're going to do a documentary about it called Some Kind of Metal Machine Music. It's good. I like this. I think it actually, the record, what it sounded like to me was like Lou Reed telling a scary story while Enter Sandman was playing on the TV behind him. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. like, I was like, they should have just made a record called Lou Reed will tell scary stories to like, you know, old Metallica songs. And he'll just like take, they'll take like the actual track and just remove Hetfield and have Lou Reed tell a spooky story. That would have been a way Over better it, record. Yeah. yeah. And they could call it Take a Walk on the Mild Side. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lou Reed telling a story to one would scare the cr- I want right? Lou Reed reading Edgar Allan Poe to one. <laughs> to one? Yeah. See, that's. We yeah. have something. I'll give we you that. I that. want him reading the Raven to one. Can you? <laughs> right. It has Tell, to be. <laughs> Telltale heart. Yeah. And, 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 all, and, and also, by the way, I've only listened to about three seconds of the yeah, Raven Metallica. Just, uh, That's all I really heard. Was I that. listened to slightly more of that than the Jack White ICP thing. Oh, I actually yeah, listened I, to that whole track. I couldn't listen to that. I, 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 I just couldn't. I think I was just in a state of shock <laughs> the whole no. time. Just to just to be disrespectful to one more musician, uh, Jack White is someone who appears to do the left turn thing, and many people revere him for the exact virtues that I'm talking about. But I don't believe him, and I don't like him, and I don't like his left turns, and I don't like his right turns, and I don't like him. What what bugs you about him? I think he's weird for weird's sake. I don't know if you saw that movie. It might get loud about guitars and rock and oh, stuff yeah, and all that. Yeah. Yeah, Jimmy he, Page, he was, the Edge, yeah, and Jack he was White. The most, that, 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 he did not appeal to me when he had the little kid. Well, I think that was a great movie about something they didn't intend to make a movie about, which is the increasing self consciousness in rock. You had Jimmy Page, who liked dragons and legs and everything else, was just an utter and complete music geek. The scene where he's like listening to a Link Ray forty five and like lipsing to yeah. it. That's what music is, and so they've got him just out there like he's got a driver he's in his limo he's like doing his thing right and then you got the edge who to me is kind of like revamping their career and trying to be cool and to me very conscious of being like nice and the good rocker which i can relate to i totally get it um and then you got jack white who you know yeah there's this little kid there and it's all this art thing and then he's like telling dark stories about his childhood but now he's in performance art mode, so really? Or was he lived, grew up upscale on the, you know, somewhere else? Like, who? And you know what? If you're Dylan, you get to do that. You don't, you just don't get to do it if you're Jack White. I just think he, 
it's hard to explain, but Jack White is one of many artists to me that he's not, he's incredibly talented. He's had great moments. He's written some great songs. Don't take it away from him. But he wants so badly to be the genius. And there's so many people who want to consider him the genius because there aren't other geniuses around, and they think, oh, well, there must need to be a genius for now. Oh, Jack White, he's the guy. He's the chameleon. He's the wacky guy. I don't... don't It just doesn't doesn't do a thing for me. Did you see the documentary was uh, Under the Great White? No, and I'd like to. That made me like the White Stripes band. Because the last time I saw the White... Last couple times I saw the White Stripes, I was like, why do I even like this band? I don't get it. I saw White Stripes on that old... You know, I remember some old MTV clip of them doing something that definitely got to me. Like, they they got to me and they had some serious, serious moments. I think they had more to do with Meg than they did with Jack, actually. Um, But he's a sick player. Like, I totally... I get it. I don't think I don't get Jack White. And it was, here's one of the things I don't like is a lot of people who love him would think that I was, that I didn't understand. And I think I do understand actually super, super well. And I just don't buy it. I don't believe I, it. I, I think, I think if you watch that documentary, it might'll change your opinion like you did ours. Cause it's, it, it did, the, did to me cause it, it showed in fact how calculating he was with the image of that band and how it was about limitations to create. I like that. It's pretty fascinating. I like those two sentences a lot. To to the point where he, one moment will stick with me through the whole thing is he talks about spacing out the stage that he puts the keyboard just a little too far away from the one mic. Smart. The other one mic because he knows that he just has to run that much quicker. Yeah, I remember that moment. Yeah, that's good. And then he has, uh, uh, he keeps all his guitar picks not on the stand but on a, but all the way in the back of the stage. So if he loses it during the song while he's singing, he's got to keep going. And he says he does these things on purpose, which, you know, sound a little forced now that I'm saying them. Yeah, but, see, actually I'm yeah. back. Yeah. You had me for a second. Now I'm like, yeah, this is actually, this is what I hate about him is because you just fucking set up your stage yeah. the easiest way and you go play and then you deal with the limitations. You don't create limitations for yourself even though you could have it any way you wanted it. That's I succeeded stupid. in doing the opposite of what I didn't intend <laughs> That's to That's stupid. I remember Virgin wanted to sign one line drawing and we had a f- hilarious argument where uh, one sentence was, the kids are going to love the robot, um, which was a sentence in which they didn't sign me. Um, uh, he had seen me at Skate and Surf or something like that, this Jersey festival, and, and you know, I'd done my solo thing with R2, and, and he was so into that. And he just wanted to brand that and blow it up big. And I was like, yeah, that'll make that really stupid really fast. <laughs> um, and he was trying to sell me on Virgin as an indie label, um, and doing some, you know, backbends of rationale to figure this out. And I just said, okay, so let's just talk about the indie labeling. So what was the marketing budget for the White Stripes? And again, just silence. And that was the end of the conversation, pretty much. Just, <laughs> I, don't care, I don't care who your distributor is or how it works out for you. When you spent more money marketing a band than most labels spend in their entire existence, you are not an indie label. Who, who in that documentary with Jimmy Page and The Edge would you have rather seen other than Jack White? Who would have been that next generation guitar player to make that movie make sense for you? First guy that comes to mind is Johnny Greenwood. Hmm. He's, I think, one of the only people to have advanced the guitar in the last... That makes sense. Yeah, and even he, sadly, has thrown it out. But, you know, okay, computer error, Johnny Greenwood. That's who I would have taken. Um, I don't know. That's the first thing that comes to mind. There are probably some other ones, but I think... Especially that Pixies documentary he where might he, still he talks win. about 
they had to make OK Computer. Or no, they had to make Kid A because they just couldn't. They they had nothing else to rip off the Pixies with. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good line. Yeah. That's a good line. Man, I interviewed them. I was a journalist too, and I interviewed Radiohead on the OK Computer tour. And one of the most depressing things to me about Kid A, which is actually in hindsight a good record, but before that they were really excited to make a Motown record after that. Mm. They were, it was, I interviewed Phil and uh, the guitarist who no one knows his name, including me. Um, Phil the drummer and whoever the guitarist. Anyway, they were super sweet and we all we did, I just literally said, I can write and it's going to be a good article, but all I want to do is talk with you about music and I want to talk to you about Zeppelin and Prince and U2 and whatever. And so we just goofed off for an hour. They were so psyched because they were being asked all these really high-minded questions about OK Computer at that time. Anyway, they said after that record, all they wanted to do was get in the studio and play their instruments and play like a beautiful like recorded live Motown record. And I was over the moon. And then I waited and waited and waited. And then I got... Yeah. I do like that record, but I think it's... No, it's great. Well, I think it's the... For me, it's the last radio record that I just went crazy for. There's a BBC Live session they did after they did that record that is a really great incarnation of those tunes because it's necessarily more live and kind of exciting and fueled up. And uh, they do... So, uh, an amazing idiotech, an amazing um, disappear completely, and uh, and I believe everything is the right place. I gotta um, go. I think it's a good time to end this up. Hey, thanks for talking to us. Uh, you you did exactly what this is about. I'm sorry. I no, that's the only phrase. <laughs> no, it's the only phrase that comes to mind. But uh, here's what I'll say: if you give me the chance, I'm I'm slowly sliding out of my chair, people. If you give me the chance. I'll try and come back and be more focused or something. And no. I'm sorry. And I hope we don't want you make it. something out of this. And I had a lot of fun. So John and I are still friends, John and Matranga, even though we have that big Van Halen disagreement. <laughs> uh, also, I did not know that he basically kind of hippied out over Pearl Jam. You follow a band. He loves them. Kind of means you're a hippie, right? Which means I was a hippie for Jawbreaker because I kind of followed them around a bit. <laughs> I think that's different. It's not hippie. You could be more. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's hippie if you get drunk and slobber over the singer like I've done too many times. That's groupie. Yeah, that you're, is groupie. you're more groupie you. than hippie. That's different. More stalker than anything. Yeah, stalker. Is also, different. yes. Yeah, definitely. I don't go to the bar he bartends in, <laughs> although I might just now. Uh, John Matranga, he just did a, a recent set. I mean, we recorded that so long ago before the New York Marathon that Jonah ran. Um, he just did a set of his, one of my favorite one-line drawing records, Visitor, in its entirety, front to back, which is kind of funny because he told me years ago, one-line drawing is just him and uh, Beat Machine inside an R2-D2. <laughs> he said, I'm going to do a one-line drawing reunion. <laughs> I broke it up I'm going to do a reunion and he did it he did a That's bunch of dates at the Knitting Factory in LA and he just did this which I think is really great if you've not seen Jonah Matrenga live it is an amazing experience Mike has seen it yeah dude it was awesome I mean he really like people the fans were totally like super 100% like obsessed with him and it happened awesome. what we spoke about yeah, the we, podcast. we opened for him. Clamors open. Oh, my God. It was awesome. We had a gut bucket going. We had, like, the wash tub base. I think we confused a lot of people, but it was it was awesome. I mean, we totally... Did Jonah dig it? Yeah. Yeah, he totally. Like, I think, unless he was, like, uh, it's, you know... He was totally... I think he was totally into it. I mean, we had the clamor out there. We totally rocked. We did a lot of our really loud stuff acoustic. <laughs> so, we had never tried it before. So, we just decided to take, like, the loud 
stuff that we do and make it acoustic. Without I love the fact that you bring in this, you know, actual clamor in to open for Jonah Matranga, whose crowds usually are, you know, pin drop silent. It was totally silent, but we, I mean, he was, you come in seeing a guy play, singing into a clam rake. Like he brought his, he brings a clam rake mic stand where it's like an actual <laughs> clam rake. And you see this old fisherman guy on a big wash tub bass. And then I'm, you know, holding down the fort on guitar, hopefully like, so we can keep it, you know, but it was a, uh, Part comedy show, too, because we sort of, like, we were very unrehearsed, so we sort of went into a couple of different songs, and like, and everybody sort of was just started, like, we kind of got the crowd laughing, and I think that's what broke that silence, and then it was cool. Like, everybody was really awesome. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, Jonah. Yeah, man. You can check out the Clamors. They're going to be on iTunes at some point when Mike figures it out. Yeah. <laughs> What you can hear on iTunes is the music you hear on Going Off Track. The Goops, Brad Worrell's band. When you were Brad Goop and everyone thought you were what, Swiss? Dutch, I think. Dutch? That's what somebody, <laughs> somebody told me. They thought I was Dutch. They the thought Gust- it was my real last Augustus name. Augustus Gloop. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know your last name for years. Uh, Brad Conley mixes the music for the show and produces Going Off Track. Um, this was a fun guest to have because it was someone that Jonah Bear and I both have in our Rolodex. Yes. And by Rolodex, I mean phones. <laughs> That'd be neat if your phone actually flipped like a Rolodex. We just created an app, everyone. Going off track, TM. Uh, if you enjoy going off track, why not go on to iTunes and listen to it and give us a wonderful review? We would like it. Uh, you can check us out at facebook.com slash going off track. Give us a like. Visit our website to learn more about all four of us. See what shows have happened in the past. If you want to listen to them, you may. They are always up. And uh, next week... The awesome continues.